Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Out of Oscar podcast. The podcast which seeks to explore the award season darlings that in the end could not pick up an Oscar nomination. My name is James Konofsky. Today, I'm joined by Ben Miller. Ben is the David Foulis of podcasting. He is a writer for the film experience and cinema scholars, as well as his own website, Ice Cream for Freaks. Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so very much for having me. I'm honored to be here. So today we're discussing three runner-ups to 1998's Best Picture lineup, Gods and Monsters, Out of Sight, and The Truman Show. So we've got a great opportunity to look past that year's infatuation with Elizabethan and World War II dramas and to dive into the other deserving films from that year because growing up, I thought that the only good films from 98 were either World War II or, you know, we got some Queen Elizabeth screen time. Nothing further from the truth. Absolutely. Should we start with Gods and Monsters? Yes, please. Let's. They have nothing in common. Mr. Clayton Boone, my gardener. He's never met a princess, only queens. Except their humanity. I've spent much of my life outrunning the past. All right, so synopsis here. Director James Wales' heyday is long behind him. So James Whale being the director of Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man. Retired and a semi-recluse, he develops an unlikely friendship with his yard man, which will change them forever. I just love those 90s, just overdramatic hyperbole. <laughs> you, gotta, uh, you gotta throw those in there to get the, get the audience hooked. Yeah. It's directed by Bill Condon and stars Ian McKellen, Brendan Fraser, and Lynn Redgrave. So it was nominated for the Best Picture Equivalents at the Globes, Critics, PGA, and won the Indie Spirit Award, and even won that National Board of Review from that year. So at the Oscars, Condon won Best Adapted Screenplay, and it was nominated in Lead Actor for McKellen and Supporting Actress for Lynn Redgrave. Right off the bat, what do you think of Gods and Monsters? I, th- I think it's really great. Um, it, it's It has such a distinct... Um, idea of the film it's going to be and um, I, I've only watched it uh, a few times and the first time was only a few months ago but uh, I remember being uh, you know going into it I knew the kind of reputation it had and the film it was and uh, I'm really I was, I was really obviously blown away by Ian McKellen's performance it's it's uh, it's really almost revolutionary in the type it is um, he's he plays such a complex character uh, with such conflicted emotions and, you know, a, a, a gay character back in the, in the fifties where it's wasn't really okay to be gay, but it was, but only in a certain way. Certain circles. And yeah. Yes. Yes. And uh, it, it's, it's a, uh, it's such a complex story and uh, it really captured me, um, especially the back and forth between McKellen and uh, Brendan Fraser. Um, Fraser's a uh, little reconnaissance lately, uh, is uh uh is has been really interesting uh renaissance excuse me i get caught up in the reconnaissance uh, of it all but uh, uh the brendan fraser uh renaissance has really uh brought that back into the forefront as well just because uh i think that performance is really underrated as well um i think it's a great movie um i understand why it didn't make the list but uh i think it's it's certainly if it was included in best picture i wouldn't have been in any way disappointed 
Yeah, and even its adapted screenplay win is a is a rarity because apart from I think it's one of three films to win in that category without being Best Picture nominated, the others being Bad and the Beautiful and Sling Blade. So I think, you know, there's there definitely was a push to get into Best Picture. It would have been literally on the cusp. Yeah, and um, it's it's unfortunate, you know, this is only, it's only, you know, 23 years ago. It's nothing like... It, it, this wasn't, you know, generations and decades and decades ago. This is generally not that long ago. And I think it's just because it's a gay movie. It's a, it's a, it's, it's about a gay subject, a, a gay man directed by a gay man, um, with a gay star. And they're like, okay, well, we can award it here and there. And they even give it, even give it the Oscar and, who knows how close McKellen actually came to it, but when it comes down to it, I think they were just like, okay, well, let's let's pump the brakes a little bit. It's still 1998. We're not that we're not there yet, I guess. Not that progressive. Yes. Even though we like the idea that we are, that's the whole Hollywood conundrum. Yeah, I mean, I mean, seven years after this, everybody was expecting Brooklyn Mountain to run away with it, and mm-hmm. it didn't happen at all. And they instead went with Crash, which was, of course, insane. In hindsight, and uh, as soon as it happened, in hindsight, everything about it just felt wrong. Um, but with Gods and Monsters, I think it was as simple as it's like, well, you know, we're going to give it to McKellen. Redgrave's a, you know, she's she's with a famous name. Uh, go ahead and give her one. Condon's a new face. We'll give him the award. And that'll settle that. And I think they just had different ideas of, uh, like like you said, it was it's ninety eight was so strange as far as the niches they wanted to fit into and gods and monsters was its own thing. And um, I, I didn't think they were ready for that, I guess. Yeah. And also being very much an independent film without the yeah, big studio yeah. backing, without the big campaigns. I mean, we'll get into this later, but it just seems that every film was suff- suffocated by Miramax's power. Yeah, absolutely. To speak more about the film, because this was my first time watching it and mm. I was pleasantly surprised and it was sort of curious type of film, um, especially the way it unveils itself. So you've got that interview with the twist in the beginning. What I wrote down as Wikipedia monologues, that's maybe a bit of a... (laughs) No, that's a good way to put it. I mean... Just because he sort of stops to just recite, and I was in World War One, you know. (laughs) And so I I, I like the way it sort of ties into Wales' work. I mean, I was just waiting for that moment where they substitute for Frankenstein and then it happened. Sure. I was like, yeah, this is, this is what I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. They really, it's, it, it's a, it's a, it's a duel of the life and what his life was assumed to be like, essentially mm. what he created and what he actually was. Cause it's, it's right to say that this is a very fictitious take on his final days because you don't really know what Wales final days were like. Of course not. Yeah. yeah and I, I doubt he had this, um, you know, yard man. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, 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 now the funny thing about it is in a lot of, a lot of people in hindsight have looked at this and go, Oh, Brandon Frazier's the the weak link of this film. There are certain roles that are meant to be lesser and mm-hmm. they'll never, they were never really meant to be the number one in the film, despite probably being the more of the screen time. Think of like uh, Tim Robbins and Shawshank Redemption, even mm-hmm. though he's essentially the star of the film. He's not really meant to be that person. And even a couple of years later, Frazier did it again with Michael Caine in The Quiet American. He almost does the exact same thing. 
playing in the exact same role, being the more prominent one. But again, his co-star gets Oscar nominated. I remember watching it and thinking, okay, he's not really doing much with this character. Then I realized, well, he is supposed to be a bit of a airhead for a lack of better term. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of dumb. You know, you think he can't match McKellen's flamboyance and he sort of gets drowned by Lynn's cantankerous maid. But in a way, he is perfectly in sync with the film. Yeah. He is there to sort of deal that like overarching arc. And he also gets the final scene in the film. Yeah. And even he's he's kind of some part of the uh, kind of some part of a surrogate as far as the uh, intolerance of his actions. Essentially, as Whale goes on and tries to hit on him, he lashes out and goes against it and says, oh, this is this is not working, whatever it storms out. And then eventually he comes back and he realizes it's like, OK, what was really being hurt here? It's like just kind of my own fragile masculinity and then he just settles back into it and then after a while obviously near the climax of the film he kind of acquiesces into a okay i'm not going to take it to a that level but i'm going to take it a level further than i'm probably comfortable with just for the sake of this friend i also particularly love when he storms out because he just has to make a point about it like he slams the door then he slams open the door. Then he beats on the wall. He just has to make the point that he is kind of disgusted by it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's part of the airhead side of it. It's just like, well, it's like, yeah, I'm angry. And I'm, I'm obviously angry, but I have to really hammer home the point that I'm angry. And it's like, did you see that I'm angry? I'm angry. Goodbye. I'm angry. Yes. Uh, really like how a lot of critics pointed out that the script almost feels like a literary classic. I think that's a huge compliment to give this film. Absolutely. It's, it, it does. It's very, it's very literary and it's telling from the flashbacks, the flash forwards, the, uh, the transitions, the scene to scene, the, uh, you know, the kind of the, um, it, it, I was really uh, blown away by how well this film um, gives uh, exposition without feeling clunky. Like uh, the the Lynn Redgrave talks to Brendan Fraser about this and that, and then him, then McKellen flashing back or things like that are little snarky comments that fill in all these gaps without just sitting down, looking at the camera and saying, this is what you're missing. One, two, three. It, it, screenplay wise is this kind of a funny Oscar year, just because the Oscar films are not exactly script. Like you, you don't, especially with war films, you don't think of scripts and the screenplays when it comes to uh comes to war films i still don't get how 1917 was nominated for screenplay exactly yeah it's it's uh, it's nothing against the film itself but that's not what the film is about it's about the atmosphere it's about what lines do you remember from that film and in here there's it's not only just like the lines it's the it's the lived in and the feeling and just almost the uh the 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 excessive weight on whale the whole time just he's just being crushed by all these feelings mckellen is perfectly cast so you obviously have him playing into wales eccentricity and how he sort of i don't want to say like sucks the life out of the room because that's not what he does but in a way when he's with fraser he is totally bringing the attention to himself and there's this awkward chemistry you would think that they're not good actors but they're playing into that absolute awkwardness of their meetings and he channels wales regret just guilt the dark past and then you sort of look at his personality as a coping mechanism 
So just that duality of his performance is really remarkable. And this is when we talk about understated performances and how they should, in the end, win an Oscar over a really um, look at me monologue. I think of McKellen in this year, especially who we lost to. Um, <laughs> we will get into that. Um, but uh, I, I really like what you said about uh, him sucking up all the energy in the room in the scenes with Frazier. But in those party scenes, he goes, and you can tell there's so much, so much history with the people at the party with Whale, because it, you could tell in the past, Whale has come in, sucked all the energy out, and then all these people are like, oh, this guy. And he is fully aware of how everybody feels about him. So he has to regress. And just that that push and pull of when when I can be the flamboyant. You know, you know, head of the class and when I have to, okay, I have to take a step back. Yeah. And because you can tell he's so sick of formalities at his age, he Absolutely. scoffs at an invite from Princess Margaret. You'd think James Whale <laughs> would love Princess Margaret, this sort of royal who went against the grain and was sure. a bit crazy. So it makes me wonder, in your opinion, do you think that this is an anti-Hollywood picture? I, th- I think it is mostly because especially all the uh, kind of, veiled accusations and unveiled accusations that get thrown around when they go to that party and uh, you know it's like oh this you know this person this producer did this this time and all this and it's 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 one of those things that hollywood was not ready to face the cruelty of their past yet and the reality of it and this was kind of putting it forefront going it's like no, no this is how it was like he was he was absolutely having these parties with all these guys, but at the same time, he would never admit it in public. And uh, it, it was it was kind of holding up a mirror to Hollywood and saying, this is how the reality is. And Hollywood's going, no, 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 this is not what it is. And it, it's, it's Hollywood being in denial more than anything else, I think. Yeah, and this is probably me reaching. I don't know if other people had this connection, but when he's lying face down in the pool the first thing i thought of was sunset boulevard absolutely another film about decrepit hollywood dreams and their careers that don't pan out in the way that they expect i don't know if that was intentional that's just me absolutely just reaching for that connection i'll i'll let you have that reach even just the frankenstein analogy was really interesting this aloof sort of well he's more good looking than frankenstein but this mysterious man and whale's disconnect from reality molding him into his own creature yeah i have to say the ending was a bit of a cop-out i don't really think he would have had that what's the right word where he sort of uh that 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 fairy tale um yeah yeah and when he's like he's reminiscing on it as if it was a good experience in his life and he's the arc doesn't seem completely fleshed out and it seems like they wanted to give it kind of a happy ending and doesn't really suit what happened literally 10 minutes prior. I do agree with you. It also feels like different characters. The Brendan Fraser character, uh, Clayton is his name, excuse me. Uh, so Clayton, the entire time, like we said, he's a he's a drinking womanizer, not really a very smart guy, um, very you know manly, all that kind of stuff. And he has this steady characterization the whole time, even with his conflicted feelings about Boone, the whole, uh, about Whale the whole time. That last scene, it's like this character is a completely different person. All of a sudden, this character, all of a sudden, he seems a little more, you know, intelligent out of nowhere. And I, I, I agree with you. It feels cheapened. Would, would you have preferred just to end on on Whale's death and kind of fade out? Or it's funny because I hate when biopics end with death. 
with the with the subject's death. But I have to say, in this instance, it would have worked, and especially like a slow, drawn out zoom out to see his surroundings that he's in Hollywood or wherever, sure. and then you can make your own connections. I think that there's also this idea of making Clayton Boone, or really trying to make Clayton Boone this subject of good morality in that he's become this good family man he cares about his son it's very idyllic and yeah see what whale has done yeah and it, yeah, it, i i agree and especially when i was i was thinking that wasn't the experience that he would have taken away from it so it was very jarring i think that's a good way to put it yeah i, I imagine it would have been memorable but i'm not sure you tell a lot of people about your experience uh, based off of what everything happened Maybe he does, but uh, but I don't think it's something he looks back and is like, boy, I really grew with that. He does feel remorse or saddened by his death. Maybe he wanted more from that connection that he wasn't expecting. But yeah, I don't think he's, this is he's he can even turn this into a sort of fairy tale. It feels like a very like producer's notes. It feels like that. Though uh, though to uh, to Condon's credit, um, Fraser's very intentional crew cut or uh, uh to simulate the uh, frankenstein monster is not unintentional obviously and uh um i i, I really do you think this is a well-directed film because i really do um i think condon has a uh was this his first film um i, I think he shows a lot of confidence for a guy that doesn't really have the you would going into it you don't really know who bill condon is i don't necessarily think it's a good directed film i think that the actors brew a lot of their own sort of sentiment i will say that in some ways it feels very procedural so we talk about biopics being by the books this kind of felt like a 90s tv episode gone a bit rogue like ah. i wrote down why is this reminding me of the x-files and i, <laughs> I, I don't know about that uh i don't know how fleshed out that thought was but, you know, you got like the doctors meeting in the beginning. And it's like, you're going to die, Mr. Whale. I think we could have gone without a bit of the more obvious remarks. And yeah. there's maybe something a bit about the cinematography, which is a bit claustrophobic, mm. um, which could be obviously the point. You know, these are very awkward interactions that we're having. It would have been a lot better in a is it 16 by 9 ratio. No. Uh, which, yes. Yeah. Like a TV, yeah, with, TV aspect ratio. Are, are you a big fan of Condon in general? Oh, I mean, like, I guess he ne- he did what he had to do for Dreamgirls and yeah, and then he wrote a pretty good script for Chicago, I guess. But I don't really understand how scripts work with musicals entirely. Yeah, um, I, I I I feel like I feel like Gods and Monsters and Kinsey are the only times he has done what he's meant to be doing and the rest of the time he's either you know fulfilling a gig or collecting a gigantic paycheck uh be it with the the twilight films or beauty and the beast oh yeah i didn't even mention twilight that's oh yeah i mean it's those films have taken so many promising directors and just given above the bag of cash and Mm -hmm. i get it but at the same time um uh, he's had a lot of hits, a lot of a lot of misses after that. I mean, uh, Good Liar, the, the Fifth Estate. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Kinsey because I feel like he does what he meant to do for Gods and Monsters as well, which is take a subject matter which you wouldn't particularly find fascinating and make it into this mm-hmm. engrossing 
interesting film. This is the first Gods and Monsters being the one where he's like, okay, this is my film. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. It's my script. And um, this it feels like one of the few times he's had the opportunity to do what he wants to do. Yeah. And also, just a side note, Dreamgirls is Gods and Monsters in that year. So that was the runner up on the nomination ballot. So with a lot of precursor awards. Oh, really? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah no, not wrong. Yeah. All right. If you're an Academy member, and regardless of competition, you're taking your ballot and you're filling out who you'd like to see nominated and what you'd like to see nominated. What in Gods and Monsters is getting your vote? Um, definitely McKellen. I think it goes with that question. Um, I think the screenplay does reach the heights um, of, of a nomination. I'm not sure if I'd give it the win. Maybe um, I'd have to. There's well, because my because I know what adapted screenplay would have been. Uh, or this was original. No, is this adapted? It was adapted. Okay, so uh, my adapt. It wouldn't have been my adapted screenplay winner, but I would have get. Uh, I'm not all in on Redgrave in this film. Mm. I think she's. I think she's fine, but um, I'm not. Uh, there's. There's just a lot of performances in the year that I would have gone with otherwise. Um, if I get a year of ten ballot uh, of of one through ten for best picture, Gods and Monsters makes it. Uh, for five, no. I would go absolutely, like you said, Best Actor for McKellen. I'm probably skipping Best Supporting Actress for Redgrave. Like you said, I'm she's very good in a one-note role. But apart from the scene where she is talking to Fraser in the kitchen and she says marvelously droll the way that she does, I don't think there's really anything else <laughs> <Yeah>. interesting about <laughs> the character. Yeah. Um, so I'm probably going to skip on that, even though I would love to see more of Lynn Redgrave's work. And I haven't seen Georgie Girl. Yeah, I haven't either. I, I thought about would I nominate Frasier in Supporting Actor? It's a great question. The Supporting Actor lineup from that year is very underwhelming, in my opinion. Mm. And mm. I feel like there could be room made for him for an understated performance, for a performance that works so well in the in the film, even if you sort of look at it and you think that's not a fully fleshed out character. I feel like they should he should have been nominated. It is a true supporting role as opposed to a, uh, a, a co-starring role by a famous actor. Like um, there, the, if you look at the nominees, I mean, Robert Duvall, Billy Bob Thornton, Jeffrey Rush, Ed Harris, these are guys who are at the forefront. They're kind of movie stars at this point. And then James Colborn is this classic guy. So you don't expect him not to be there. Um, Brendan Fraser is a true supporting player. He supports McKellen so much in this. I'm not entirely sure if I'd give his best picture. Even in 10? Okay, definitely in 10. But okay. <laughs> but, but, with, but with five, I think that the ah, sum okay. of its parts aren't as strong as the individual things. And I didn't mention the screenplay. I would absolutely, that screenplay is the highlight and I would absolutely um, nominate that. It's even surprising because it happened so late in the night. It was the third from the last award presented, the screenplays. So, so it was that one director and picture? So after it was director and picture, yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And in the way the screenplays were like an alternate best picture, because you've got yeah. these great films that were overlooked in the best picture category that were nominated. You've got Primary Colors, uh, Out of Sight, Truman Show, and Bullworth. It's interesting how that happens so late. You'd think that Gods and Monsters was done for, and then it wins three hours into the night. All right. So we'll move on to Out of Sight. It may only happen a few times in your life. Oh, once. 
And you always remember it because it was there and you let it go and you think to yourself, what if I had stopped? No bills off the bottom of the drawer, please. Is your first time being around here? The description is kind of hilarious because it's so um, vague. So, <laughs> meet Jack. Okay, this sounds like a trailer narration. <laughs> I'm just realizing now. Meet Jack Foley, a smooth criminal who bends the law and is determined to make one last heist. Aaron Cisco is a federal marshal who chooses all the right moves and all the wrong guys. Now they're willing to risk it all to find if there's more between them than just the law. Okay, if you're listening to this, I don't think I've given any description. That film for the sounds film. terrible. That sounds <laughs> terrible. I was trying to find the best description, and the you know, like the Google shorthand one. Oh, it was something really weird about like them bonding in the car trunk, which happens in the film. But I don't know if that's enticing audiences. Yeah, yeah, it's that, that's. It's sort of a hard film to describe. How would you describe it? Describe it as a. Um... Crime, romance, comedy, thriller, jail movie, crime film, cop movie. It's it's a it's a multi-genre film. Okay, full disclosure for the listeners, this is this might be my favorite movie ever. But it's it's not one thing. It's it, you know, duality of criminals and cops, uh, you know, the the levels of criminality that people are willing to go to, the the one last heist. Uh, that's that's the best way to describe it. Um, yeah. And as I was watching it, I just kept thinking, God, what has become of movies? Like, why don't we have movies yeah. like this anymore? Yes. It's, it's yeah. It's so ironic to get your refreshing look on a crime thriller romance mishmash from a 20-year-old film. But it feels so alive and so fresh and so modern. And it is Soderbergh sort of dipping his toes before he kind of dives into Ocean's Eleven and even Traffic in a way, which uh, also tells a non-linear narrative. And the film is just, oh, you could just describe it in the best keywords. Like it is sultry, seductive, yes, gritty when it needs to be, and so mysterious. And the casting is phenomenal. This is so... So obviously listening to your last week's podcast about Jennifer Lopez, the entire time I was thinking is I, the first time I watched this movie, it was, you know, mid two thousands after Jennifer Lopez's um, films have, have, you know, heavy, the romantic comedies and things like that. It was like around enough has come out, something like that. And I'm looking at out of sight and I'm going, why isn't she making more movies like this? Because she is phenomenal in this film and it seems like as she makes this and you're like okay this is who jennifer lopez is going to be and then she's just not that again and she doesn't have that type of uh it's it's not that she's not picking those roles i'm just not sure those roles are given to her it's Mm -hmm. not the kind of role that is offered to somebody who is beautiful and it's also one of my favorite things about out of sight is her characterization. It's not that like, she's a police officer. She's a, she's a a U.S. Marshal, excuse me. So she's considered tough and all this kind of stuff. And she uses her physicality, but at no point are you blown away by her. She's not doing, you know, karate kicks and all this crazy stuff. Mm. She generally has a gun. She uses, uh, you know, uses a, a nightstick or something like that. 
and uses her physicality smartly and is never overpowered because she never puts herself in a position of being overpowered. It's such a smart way of having a female police officer seem realistic, a female, uh, I keep saying police officer, but yeah, law enforcement. That's a good way is uh, without being overpowered. Yeah. And so last week we mentioned that JLo is aware of the camera in Hustlers. She's in this film. She's so seamless. She is so good. I love that the character, even though she falls for a suspect, is not patronized. And her ex- her expertise and her ambition is also entirely intact. I also found it curious when I was reading some reviews that some critics mentioned when you read the novel, it's sort of hard to imagine a pistol whipping bombshell, as they put it. But JLo kind of fully realizes that character and makes it believable. Absolutely. It, it like I really like her in Hustlers. I still think this is her best performance, bar none, just because this is the it's the most likable JLo can be. Because in Hustlers, I mean, she's she's so vibrant, has this incredible personality and this characterization. She does a great job, but she's just the, the character itself can come across as unlikable for the for a multitude of reasons that we all went into last week. But I mean, mm. in, in this one, she is, you're so on her side from the jump. I want to tell you one of my favorite scenes of hers, yeah. and that's right after the, uh, the famous, quote unquote, sex scene between her and uh, George Clooney's character, Jack. She gets up and immediately goes, oh no, I just had sex with a criminal. That was dumb. And she starts immediately questioning herself and going, oh, no, this is not the right thing to do. And mm. it, it immediately, everybody, you're just immediately on her side. You're just like, yes, you realize this, you're acknowledging this, and you can move forward with it. And it's uh, it's just such a great characterization. And such a self-aware character, even if it sometimes doesn't yes. feel that way. I mean, I also love the scene um, when she's in the lobby. Just like I waved back. <laughs> it's it. You can almost <laughs> there. There the chemistry between Clooney and Lopez obviously sends this film into the stratosphere that it is. And it, it's it's never just like implicitly like right off the bat going. Oh, okay, she's on board with this. It takes a little while for her to warm up. Like the the famous scene of the trunk is the first time they're together, and at first she's very. Okay, I'm a I'm a I'm a law enforcement. I'm gonna bide my time. I know my gun's right here. I'm gonna get it and I'm gonna end this situation as soon as I can. And then as the situation progresses, she starts to loosen up and their chemistry grows and it just kind of evolves from there. Yeah. And also that trunk scene is so good just because of well, I think the chemistry, but even the way it's edited. We have to shout out and V Coates editing, which is some of the best in a modern film contemporary film in my opinion just seeing it all as a big timeline because i've always seen the love scene but to see it all in the way it reveals before it explains the way it moves yes. so quickly and it kind of leaves i'm sure it leaves a few people behind in the beginning who are thinking wait what is what is actually happening because in a way it is very confusing but it's also very taut and tactile and and that trunk scene in particular the editing of that is so smooth hmm. Also love the score, that jazz, slow jazz. I mean, could you think of a better accompaniment? In hindsight, it looks like, okay, this is another Soderbergh thing. But at the time, this was, it was kind of 
the first of its it's, it's not the cliche this is what created the cliche mm-hmm. Soderbergh has always been an innovative director oh, how would you describe it he's he's maybe he's slipped into a bit of mediocrity lately yeah um I think I think he has that oceans money he's living off of and he just gets to be weird as he wants to be he's very experimental lately yes oh and I just wanted to mention because uh Envy Coates is the editor who also edited Lawrence of Arabia and I thought oh really yeah I didn't know that so she won the Oscar for that I had gotten her mixed up with Dee Dee Allen, the Bonnie and Clyde <laughs> editor, you know, just another landmark pioneering editor. You know, it's so easy to get them mixed up. But I think I think that in in the hands of any other editor, the film would have come off a bit dry. And I think that two editors would have also been able to do it justice. Firstly, Sally Menker, late Sally mm. Menker, who edited Pulp Fiction, and then also Thelma Schoonmarker. I think this. I think the nonlinear version of uh, Out of Sight, as far as how the timeline works, works better for flow purposes. But Pulp Fiction is was kind of the standard bearer of where it was. I'm not going to say that. Okay, this is you know it does it does it better than Pulp Fiction. I don't know if I'm ready to say that, but it just does it in a different way. It feels like Pulp Fiction does it just for the sake of doing it for the first time. We'll talk a little bit about the famous love scene. Firstly, it comes at a pivotal point in the story. You're expecting a monumental scene to take place, and you're not really expecting it to take to be their meeting, but it is. I also love that. Um, so JLo's character Karen, she's sitting at this kind of high end bar. These just like creepy dudes are coming up to her, <laughs> and I also just love how you compare them to Clooney and you think how Clooney can pull off that sort of semi-intrusive flotation, whereas they just look like clowns. Yes. Um, the, <laughs> I really, I really, unfortunately uh, in that situation, very uh, empathize with all those guys just because it's like, well, it's just me and my buddies and JLo, we got to take a shot. And then George Clooney walks in and you're like, ah, oh, never mind. Everything outside of that scene is spectacular. That scene is perfect from beginning to end in every sense of the word in every facet the the two oscar nominations it got uh, for adapted screenplay and editing were probably mostly based on that scene the, the the back and forth the cutting the the clean language between each other and then you know it's so the cutting between the uh having the you know jlo's hand on the bourbon and then clooney's hand comes over on it cut to the hotel scene and back and forth. It's so clean. I gather this is not the first time you've watched the film. My favorite thing about the entire scene is not the interplay or anything like that. It's the sprinkled in compliments for no reason. <laughs> like they'll be going, they'll, they'll be talking back and forth about these random things. And, and Jayla just goes, man, I really like that suit. Mm. And these little small flirtations that obviously there's no reason to have these small flirtations in this hugely romantic scene i don't know why they're peppering these things in but it all works and even the sex scene itself is not there there's nothing really titillating about it at all there's no there's no nudity there's no no necessarily innuendo besides obviously they're going to have sex but outside of that there's no sexual content happening in this scene and it's still so sexy yeah and coates was really open about the way she edited the scene and how it's always challenging 
if not the most challenging thing to edit intimacy. You're editing, even though they're pretending, chemistry between actors and trying to make it work because when it doesn't work, it is painful to look at. Absolutely. It's great for what it doesn't show. It's great for what it shows. It's just yes. a fantastic scene. And it is like the definitive scene. There's still another 30 minutes after that scene. It's probably the, you know, if that was near the end, if that kind of dynamic scene was near the end, maybe it'd be something that would stick stick in the minds. But the fact that there's still a lot of plot to resolve after that, it's kind of uh, the other side of it. So the that scene is always talked about is there something that's overlooked that you like about the film uh don Cheadle, uh specifically he is so there, there's there i find a few times in film where a criminal can really come across as actually scary and don Cheadle's terrifying at points in this film mm. there like he he feels like he's like man he is going to do something to you um i can only think of a few times a handful of times where it's like man this seems like this seems dangerous think of like Jamie Foxx in Baby Driver, where mm. it's 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 not just oh I'm a fun criminal ha 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 it's like no 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 this guy is terrifying and he's going to do something bad and not only is he terrifying he's also Don Cheadle fun and he has fun little lines in here and um, but at the same time it's kind of stupid because mm. he's a criminal and yeah and I also have to point out that. In a year where the Best Picture nominees were overwhelmingly white, I love the diversity in this film. Yes. Uh, yeah, Isaiah Washington, Don Cheadle. Yes. Ving Rames, Louise Gosman, uh, J-Lo, of course, even Viola Davis, like we mentioned earlier, before this, we before we recorded, has a sort of, well, you kind of look back at it now as a cameo. She's not cameo. Yeah, she's, yeah. she's playing a character. Um, yeah. I feel like maybe the Academy overlooked it in higher regard because it's a very focused, hyper-focused genre film. Crime films aren't exactly looked upon kindly by the Academy. So it's not surprising that it missed. Um, I think in hindsight, I don't think there's, if, if you go back and it's like, okay, let's do the 98 Oscars over again. I think it shows up in a thousand other places. And it's totally understandable why the Critics' Choice nominated it for their best film. Yes. I mean, that because it was on plenty of Critics' Top 10 lists. And just I mentioned the diversity of the cast, but I also just love the cast in general. Like how Nancy Allen is just in the final scene. Yeah. <laughs> You've got Brian De Palma's It Go playing this. Wait, is she? she's not a maid, is she? Or she is or a housekeeper? Uh, yeah, she, she is a maid. Yes, she's a, she's the she's Albert Brooks's housekeeper who he's also sleeping with. That's right. Albert Brooks likes, looks like George Costanza in this film with that two pairs. Yes. <laughs> it's, I mean, his, um, his, his, he's probably the only performance of the entire film that I'm not totally in love with. Hmm. But it's, it's still not, it, it's not like he's, it's not like he ruins anything. Um, it just almost feels like everybody else seems to be playing a character and he plays a bit of a cartoon. Sure. I feel like that's very yeah. Albert Brooks though. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I mean, by, na- by nature, he, he always kind of overdoes it. Like in broadcast news, for instance, he's always yes. at the peak yes. of a peak of his emotions. Like the man cannot <laughs> settle down. Yeah. Yeah. I also love that little bit of, let's just call it satire in the end, the safe is American security <laughs> made in the USA. 
I just think of that's course. brilliant. Yeah. But I also love Steve. Steve saying, "Yes, Steve." Oh, it took me a so while good. to realize that was him. Uh, he's, <laughs> he looks like a, he looks like a hippie. Yeah, is, uh, and also he's like disguising himself with so the big hat, the big mo. I yeah. So I love this film. Um, I will always go to bat to it, uh, and um, in hindsight, I think it's it's I'm ash- I'm ashamed of the Academy for not giving it more than it was. I am very proud of them for um, awarding Scott Frank way before it was cool. Uh, the Emmys had all their fun with Scott Frank, and yeah, it was a terrible speech, but but he is really good, and I have yet to run anything Scott Frank does that I don't enjoy. Good time to mention that Godless was pretty good, if not yes, under, underseen. Yes. Yeah, that Emmy speech was... Could you imagine if we got that in 98 at the Oscars? <laughs> so, all right, if you were an Academy voter, what are you nominating this in? Uh, okay, so picture director screenplay, uh, Jennifer Lopez Best Actress undoubtedly. Um, I think Clooney's spectacular in the film. Best actor is a little bit of a minefield in '98, just because there are some really, really good performances. Um, I don't think he makes it in in my ballot, um, but he it, he's he's not far off. Like he's, he's right on the cusp, but, uh, but I don't think he makes it in. Um, I would get Cheadle in there. Definitely. Um, maybe Ving Rhames, maybe, mm. um, I would have to, I would have to look at it. I, I love Ving Rhames is so cuddly teddy bear in this, um, which, uh, which, um, he's, he, he, he's really good at just uh, weirdly, but, like a uh, gentle giant um, type of thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, def- definitely the editing. Um, the score, uh, undoubtedly. Yeah, I think that would probably be it. All right. So I would go picture, director. I think a direction nomination is well-deserved. Editing, absolutely. Um, and adapted screenplay, of course, maybe J-Lo in actress. Mm. Maybe, but I feel like... A f- it's, a, it's a tough year for actress too. Yeah. And... Oh man, '98 is the year that I feel comfortable saying that like three out of four actors did not deserve to win, and I would actually put them pretty low down in the lineup. Yeah, I could see J Lo in actress. Yeah, I yeah I stand by it. Yeah, still her best performance. Also, in a performance that the Academy wouldn't necessarily reward. That would have been such a cool nomination. That's why we're here to revise the Academy's history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> what if no scripts, no cue cards? Morning, Spencer. How's it going? What if you were watched every moment of your life? How many cameras you got there in that town? Five thousand. I believe Truman is the first child to have been legally adopted by a corporation. That's correct. Brilliant. So the last film that we'll discuss today is The Truman Show which was nominated for the Best Picture Equivalent at the Globes, Critics, and the BAFTA. The description here, an insurance salesman is oblivious of the fact that his entire life is a TV show. As he starts noticing things and uncovers the truth, he decides to escape. It's directed by Peter Weir and stars Jim Carrey, Laura Linney, and Ed Harris, most notably. At the Oscars, it was nominated in Supporting Actor for Harris, 
director for Weir and adapted screenplay for Andrew Nichol. The Truman Show is a kick of nostalgia for me. I love this film. I do too. I've, I've seen it dozens of times. It was studied in my high school. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fun. So I, I, I've seen this so many times. And it's so fascinating because you constantly see new things. Like this is such an instantly rewarding film. It is brilliantly layered. It is smart. It is prescient. Great film. What do you think? I don't think Peter Weir gets enough credit. I, I, I don't know. I don't know where we went wrong in not giving Peter Weir the the accolades he deserves along the way. I mean, he's got a he's got a number of Oscar nominations, but I mean, it's also an Australian. Just gotta you know, I gotta point that out. Exactly. Um, Dead Poet Society, Witness, Truman Show, Mosquito Coast, Fearless, Year of Living Dangerously, Green Card, Master and Commander, maybe the most underrated film of the last thirty years even though it got a bunch of best picture nominations, okay. um, uh, stuff like that. Like he, he will never get the credit he probably deserves. And what you said about layer upon layer, it's just a testament to how dedicated Weir was to this. Um, you know, Jim Carrey always gets the, gets the accolades for his performance and obviously won the golden globe and famously snubbed for the, uh, for, for this, but at the same time, I think it's as it's. I think it's a perfect partnership between Weir and Carey, and completely understanding what they're both trying to go for. Mm. Uh, I also do love this film because this is the first time I have watched this film from the beginning in a while. I've always caught it sort of midway in when he's real, just wherever it is, and just exactly wherever, yeah, wherever yeah, yeah. he's yeah. like. Usually around the point where he's being spontaneous and he's sort of kind of understanding what's happening to him again like i said earlier when you rewatch it there's so many great things that you don't see the first time i completely forgot that sirius falls from the sky and crashes in the road the sirius star which is the sirius <laughs> light in the you can find 101,000 for the truman show absolutely it's so intricate yeah my favorite is the fact that the moon illuminates in the lightning Showing that it is much closer <laughs> than, you know, our actual moon, which is, would uh, never do that. So smart. So smart. I, I don't know if this is the screenwriter's credit, if it's Weir's credit. It's probably both. I, I love reading about this film. I love watching this film. In preparation, essentially, for this podcast, I had rewatched, uh, I'd watched Life is Beautiful, but I'd never seen before. Obviously, I come into the 98 Oscars knowing Carrie got snubbed for the Truman Show and the Oscars don't want Jim Carrey have anything to do with that and then i watch life is beautiful and roberto benini is doing a jim carrey impression it is astounding i'm like what is going on here because carrie plays it i think as straight as carrie can play it hmm. it's it's a perfectly suited role for somebody who is bursting with energy but has to hold it in i mean he he does have those occasional uh you know kind of flip out moments hmm. or when he's being silly in the mirror with the soap and, the, and, and stuff like that, it's, it's very suited for him. But I mean, his inherent sweetness is what, in, it, what makes him so good. Yeah. His character is like a clip out from a magazine. He's almost like a, he, he comes off just as that idyllic character. And so does Laura Linney. And Laura Linney was very, oh, yeah. uh, that's what she was going for. She famously said that she read Sears catalogs from the fifties. I'm so sorry that you watched life is beautiful. <laughs> was that your first time? <laughs> 
it was. Yeah, I, I I knew what I was I knew what I was getting into, but man. <sighs> Just to speak a bit more about Laura Linney's performance, this was one of my favorite performances growing up, and I don't think it got the praise that it should have. I think Laura Linney is always an overlooked actor. I feel like she should have been an Oscar winner by now, but her career has not facilitated that. She's like this perfect kind of housewife who doesn't know if she wants to be in the 50s or the 90s. That painted on smile, it's great. Oh, yeah. I especially love her during the scene where Carrie is, well, Carrie, um, Truman is sort of clued in to what is happening. And the way her eyes are darting around, she kind of looks, she constantly looks behind her at the, the, the back of the car. And that's where the camera is hidden. She's trying to get, <laughs> she's trying to get someone to help her. And when that, Oh, like idiot extra says you're welcome truman the way her face slowly draws towards him that realization that this <laughs> like, guy oh, has no exactly <laughs> and my, my favorite scene of hers is whenever truman truly understands what's going on and she has to do the ad read in the middle of his talk the mount nicaragua she, the, the mount nicaragua and he's like, like what are you talking, who are you talking to yeah. What are you talking about? Like, yeah. and she's she's just like, I am I am a professional. I'm going to put on this face, and I'm going to get through this. And it's so good. Do you think if you were an actor in this situation, you'd be able to keep up the charade? Well, I I can't imagine. I think I'd be more um, more of Truman's dad, where I'd be eventually. It's like I don't feel good about this. I I gotta I gotta exit myself from the situation because of how icky it feels, or I get like. Truman's a sweet guy. Like <laughs> I always, always think of it's like, well, Laura Linney had to be there when she was like 20 and what there she's like 35 now. Like it's a big, that's a, it's that's a, a big long time commitment. for a role. Like what's that paycheck like? <laughs> I can't imagine. Yeah, exactly. I, I like how Carrie's performance, like you said, he's, he's sweet. He's well-natured, but then I think he's like this because he's, he's being sheltered from the real world. Absolutely. He's, got, he's like arrested development. Like he's got a stunted childhood. He's like this big, a big child you see in the mirror you see the way he says good morning good evening with that i'm not going to try to break my neck doing it but that yeah and if someone was like that in real life you'd think oh my goodness this guy is a bit a bit weird but it works so well in this film because everyone in this circumstance is weird it's not just him it's christoph the guy who's running it it's all these extras who are so ready to like paint on this make-believe world for the sake of a production one of my favorite small details is um uh, Noah Emmerich, who is uh, who plays uh, Marlon uh, Truman's best friend, his job is to uh, restock um, vending machines, and uh, I think he even has like a little like soda jerk hat when he's doing it. Yeah, like it's such a ridiculous. It's like, how is this your job? How is this possibly your job? How do you make a living doing this? How do you make a living doing this yeah. exactly? So many fantastic supporting performances. I think Ed Harris is the least interesting. I'm constantly surprised by his Oscar nomination, I have to be honest. Do you know who was originally cast in that role? As Christoph? I don't. It was uh, cast and filmed uh, for a few days. It was Dennis Hopper. Okay, that would have been good. Him and Peter Weir uh, apparently did not get along. And um, I think it le- he left after two days. And so they recast it with Ed Harris. And I was watching recently, there's this Nickelodeon meta documentary where they paint the seaside as a real place and that the the show was actually real it's so it's so trippy 
it's kind of creepy as well. <laughs> so like you've got document, you've got interviews with the characters as if they were actually in this show for real. It's the best okay. marketing piece of marketing. Yeah, there's no, there's no bit of, there's no, there's nothing in this film that is that Peter Weir is doing accidentally. It's everything is incredibly purposeful. There's nothing missed. Everything is taken into consideration and everything is. Why don't you particularly like Ed Harris's performance? Okay. Well, this is very much a personal problem. I'm not totally, I don't really like Ed Harris as an actor. I, I think there's something just inherently punchable about Christoph. And he, <laughs> he never. What the, is it the beret? Is it the beret? It's the beret. It's the pretension. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. And as this sort of producer who plays God, he does really well. I, yeah. my sort of resentment comes from the Oscar nomination. Yeah. I don't think he's that interesting of a character. He's not even the most interesting person in that room. Like, I love Paul Giamatti's scenes. <laughs> <laughs> Giamatti before Giamatti, much like uh, much like Viola Davis. Uh, I think this is the same year as Private Parts, wherever he really broke out. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, again, hey, look, Giamatti's here. That's cool. Yeah. And, but I will praise to- Ed Harris's, as a character, as a, you're trying to understand a character, he is really well in that scene with, well, the actor's Harry Shearer, where he's... Yes. Being asked, well, don't you like don't you feel some guilt about this? And his response is Truman was born in front of a live studio audience. This man is kind of evil, but a very, yeah, yeah. a very shady sense of evil, version of evil. So uh, I really love Natasha McElhone in this film as well. Um, she plays maybe the trickiest character to understand and get behind, just because she kind of pops up out of nowhere, is this bright shining star and then is gone. Um, and then it's kind of from then on out, the only time you see her, is she's smiling in front of a TV, hoping he'll do the right thing. Um, but, um, I, I've, I've, I've always been a big Natasha McElhone fan. I like, uh, uh, her, her eyes are 20 feet tall. Um, and it's, 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 uh, and these super high cheekbones. I, re- I was, I'm really impressed every time I watch it that how little time she has and how much she does with that little time. I agree. And she's a great sort of counterweight to Laura Linney's Meryl. And it's sort of hard to imagine her being able to convincingly pull off these advertisements in the middle of a relationship with Truman. Like I could not imagine her, Natasha McElhone, doing the Mount Nicaragua coffee scene. It, it's that's why it's such an interesting film, and and um, I do have to uh, Andrew Nickel, who has become himself his own little uh, brand, I guess is a good way to put it. Um, the uh, the screenwriter on this film does such a good job of it's kind of like casting within the cast. Absolutely, it's the consensus to say the Truman Show has aged well in many ways. In what ways for you? Well, well, just the overarching theme of people will watch whatever is put in front of them if they find it interesting. And um, not only if they find it interesting, will they watch it and be entertained by it, they will overlook the inherent evil or creepiness behind it. The fact that Truman is essentially in a prison, which is pointed out multiple times, but he's in a prison, he's an un, he, he doesn't know he's a prisoner, so that makes it okay. And if you can separate that in your mind as a viewer, you probably watch 
the fictional show without the problem. And it kind of goes along with all the reality TV. It's like, oh, are we are we really okay with watching a woman trying to find her soulmate on TV among mm-hmm. 30 other soulmates, potential soulmates, and all this like if you you have to divorce yourself from the inherent darkness in the premise to enjoy it. And this was in 1998. This is this is pre-reality TV. Fairly certain that Survivor was the only reality show that had premiered by that time. And that Big Brother came later that year or the next year. Um, but for me as well, the biggest sort of tie to modern society is the reality TV. But I think I reality TV is the number one. And also just the way manipulation is used. And yes. Christoph's character is just any other producer, any reality TV. They're tweaking things on set. They're creating drama. They're manufacturing this world because real life is not that interesting. I mean, it is interesting, but it's hard to create conflict. So a lot of conflict goes unresolved. And I also particularly love in the ending, you've got, you've got all the viewers so worked up by Truman's escape. And then it's just got the best ending out of these three films that we discussed today. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, what else is on? They were not. Oh, where's the TV? Where's the TV guide? Yeah, and it's Scully from Brooklyn Nine Nine saying that as well. <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a it's a perfect encapsulation of what the viewers are actually supposed to be going through. It's like, okay, man, we're invested in this. Okay, it's over. Let's move on with our lives. And but isn't isn't that something that we all go through when we watch these sort of brain dead shows? Where oh, absolutely. it's this is really fascinating conflict that's been drawn out for me. But as soon as it ends, you think, why the hell did I watch that? And it also speaks yeah. to society sort of like lowering attention span. It was on because it was yeah. on. Yeah. And, and this, and it, like they said, this is, you know, this has been a you know, 30 something year running show. I mean, it's always on. So nothing's on. Let's watch Truman because it's, it's, it's always there. There's always something to go to as opposed to something that it's appointment viewing. It's almost uh, in the background and it's always something to fall back on. So if there's nothing else on, or if you want, or if you want to serve a purpose, you can go to it any time. But if not, you can go to this at any point. It's uh, it's it's a really interesting. Uh, uh, it was very prescient as far as obviously, like I said, this is 1998, mm. and and the reality show boon of like the late 2000s is one thing, and I the success of Survivor and Big Brother uh, were a factor, but I think the Truman Show played as much as a factor as anything else, and. I don't know if this man in the bathtub, what kind of life does he lead? <laughs> <laughs> How long is he in there? How, he's in the bathtub several times. You live there, I answers. Yeah. We need answers. I want to know what's on the menu at the Truman Bar. Uh, like, oh, that's right. That's a that's a bar for him, isn't it? It's a Truman Show Bar. It's it's like a TGI Fridays, but themed around Truman. I have so many questions about like what kind of theme drinks are there for each character um uh what what appetizers are named certain ways are they like are they like uh, Holly, uh planet hollywood themed like uh you know the you know the the desi arnaz dessert or something like that you know i have a thousand is, is it subsidized by the show is it just capitalizing off the show how long has this been going on like i said thousand questions. like just imagine the truman show merch well there was truman show merch wasn't there they said they could, you can buy everything in the film, including the houses. Oh my god! It is so, <laughs> so I just want to say about the Truman Show and Carrie's 
casting in particular that it's so perfect because we have a deeply emotional and sort of troubling film masquerade masqueraded as a comedy where it's really actually tragic i think it just imagine if you were truman that is unreal this one this man's one shot of life kind of ruined for a man's capitalistic venture absolutely Wow. See what I mean about this film? It is just, it's so good. See, see, your passion about the Truman Show comes out like my passion about a site. Uh, yeah. By the way, have you have you seen the clip of Jim Carrey presenting the best sound effects editing Oscar at the 98 Oscars? Remind me what, I I'm sh- I think I have. So he comes, so if, if, if for listeners who doesn't don't know, uh, at the 98 Oscars, Carrey comes out and says, I'm here to present the... The award for best sound effects editing. Oh, that's right. So that's crying. All, that's all I'm here yeah, to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, I have been beaten by Roberto Benini. He has jumped into my ocean. Winning's not the most important thing. Just an honor just to be, oh God. <laughs> it's so great. It's a it's a great speech. They show Tom Hanks and the in the and everybody laughing along. Everybody's having a grand old time. But then at the same time, you bastards, why didn't you nominate him? <laughs> exactly. It's like and and, and the, the funny thing is. Carry in his in, in that little thing. He said, "Who cares?" Has been beaten by Roberto Benigni, assuming he lost the nomination to Roberto Benigni. In reality, obviously not the case. Given that, we'll speak about Benigni. Should we move on to our nominations for the Truman Show? Yes. So I'm going all in. I had to like write this down. <laughs> okay. So I'm going picture, director, actor for Carrie, supporting actress for Linny, film editing, score. Just Philip Glass's score, especially during the storm sequence, is so good. Absolutely. I mean, it's all synth, but it's great. And of course, original screenplay. What about you? Um, I, I would I would mimic every single one of those um, with in a. I'm I'm sure you would agree with me, but production design. Yeah. I think McKellen is probably my winner, but carries a close one. All right. I mean, it's it's one and two, A B somewhere. So McKellen in supporting actress. Oh no, no, sorry, sorry. Uh, uh, in 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 best actor in nineteen ninety eight, I think it's between Ian McKellen and Jim oh Carrey McKellen. Sorry, performance. Sorry about that. I would have uh, Lenny in uh, supporting actress. I don't think I would have Ed Harris in supporting actor just because there are other alternatives. But I did like him. So. Yeah, agreed. Now we both mentioned Carrie. What yes. are we doing with Roberto Benigni? Um. I think he uh, should be cast into a volcano never to be seen again. Um, it is, like I said, I watched Life is Beautiful um, a few days ago, not, maybe a week or something like that. But um, the entire time I was watching Life is Beautiful, I was thinking of the famous Jerry Lewis film, The Day the Clown Cried. Right. I mean, there are parallels. It's remarkable that this film not only was created, was made, marketed, and released to success, and then given on a full run of Oscars is so baffling to me. Mm-hmm. I was trying to find the words of what the right words for how I felt about the film, and I'm still a little lost. It's it's inappropriate without being offensive. It's awful without being bad. It's there's it's. It just, it felt wrong. It felt icky. My key word is just tasteless. And it's, yes, it's kind of 
well, just so confusing to read that Benini actually spoke with Jewish leaders and uh, Jewish groups about the subject matter and to avoid offensive material. How can you craft a story like that with a happy, with a quote unquote happy ending? The man has lost his dad. The man, the boy has lost his dad in the end. You know how you watch it and for the first 40 minutes, you're like, oh, this isn't that bad. First 40 minutes are pretty, pretty delightful. Yeah. And then they, <laughs> and then when they go into the concentration camp, it's just not handled well. You have drained the suffering out of one of humanity's biggest tragedy to create a game out of it. And Benini has spoken about how his father was in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. And it's a really strange tribute. The thing that really rubbed me the wrong way was the lack of abject horror. Like, not only were they shielding the boy from all of it, they're shielding the audience from it. It's like, oh, no, 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 like, like this terrible stuff's happening, but we're not going to show you any of it except for the slightest blurry glimpse of a stack of bodies. That's it. Nothing else. And you're like, well, this, this, there's no, there's no gravity to any of this. Like, and all the shenanigans he gets into that he would have been shot for the first time. Like it's, 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 it's so tasteless. Yeah. And I absolutely just abhor the the way that they make the striped pajamas look like a costume. Like there is weight to what you are wearing. I freaking hate life is beautiful. But we also, <laughs> it's also important to mention that there is a huge disconnect between audience and critics. This is one of the highest yes. rated film on films on both IMDb and Letterboxd. And I, I don't get it. I don't think people have seen it. I think people are blindly telling, like, I don't, you cannot convince me that people have seen this. And so I had mentioned on Twitter, whenever I watched this film, I was like, I was baffled and couldn't find the words. And everybody, I had a bunch of mentions about people going, yeah, yeah, it's terrible. This one guy goes, I liked it. And I didn't have to say a word. 15 people in me go, you're insane. This is terrible. Like it was such a consensus of this is bad. Why are you supporting this? You know, however you can take ratings. I mean, it's all subjective. But yeah. I think there's a thing when people see it as a high, really high rated, they go, I kind of liked that. It's on 8.6 on IMDb. I'm going to give that a 10. Like this year gets saddled with the Shakespeare in Love campaigning. Shakespeare in Love is but a this, good film, though. I agree. It's a spectacular film. Life is Beautiful is bad. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And yeah. God, the, do you just think about the Miramax influence on that Oscars? It's kind of dirty. I'm going to have to have a shower. Absolutely. And we'll speak a bit more about Benini's performance. You mentioned he's doing kind of like a, he's bringing a lot of carry into it. Don't you think it's also like a really bad Chaplin impersonation? Yes. Yes. It's, and, and that feels grosser because of obviously Chaplin's connection to uh, the great dictator, the great dictator and his, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, everybody kind of saying the, the Hitler mustache and things like that. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously the 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 part that sticks out to me whenever I realized the carry the carry impression was the scene where Benini is trying to sneak across the courtyard and to avoid the spotlights, he climbs to the top of this mm. area and like lifts his leg up and avoids the spotlight and then runs to the other side. And I was like, oh. That would have been a really cool physical thing if this wasn't in a concentration camp. I know. Like, this is so terrible. Like, 
it's it's so misplaced. Yeah, and also the way that he does his final march is honestly like straight out of a horror movie. Well, yes. I'm supposed to laugh at that. And I was reading Benini saying I was like meshing the the lowest form of comedy, dressing up as a woman with the highest peak of tragedy. So your film is not that deep. And, and uh, yeah, I was thinking while I was watching it, I was thinking as I was watching it, I was like, uh, boy, this director really let him run loose. I'm like, oh, no, he directed it, too. <laughs> so I am very comfortable to say that Benini is not my winner. I think Carrie in The Truman Show is a worthy winner. I would actually like to have seen him one. I would not have had a problem with that. Um, I think my personal winner is probably McKellen, though a shout out to Edward Norton, who is right there too. I'm sure a lot of people would say Norton after Benini. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's not a it's not a fun watch. It's not a it's not a film I go to a lot. Mm. Um, but it, he's he's so is such an encapsulation of who that person is. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I'm lean. I'd lean towards McKellen, but just barely over Carrie. It's not like Carrie doesn't deserve. All right. And since we're speaking about the best picture of it all, what does your personal lineup from 98 look like? Okay. Um, I have from the actual best picture lineup, uh, Saving Private Ryan and Shakespeare in Love. I do think mm-hmm. they're both very, uh, very worthy. Um, I am a, a straight male, so I'm obligated to love Saving Private Ryan. The Truman Show, Out of Sight, and uh, one that we have not talked about, Rushmore. Um, oh, I thought you were going to say Pleasantville because that was uh, on my Pleasantville's list. number six. Pleasantville's oh. number six. I'm sorry. Yeah. But, uh, but Rushmore, Rushmore was Wes Anderson before anybody knew who Wes Anderson was. Yeah. It was, you know, it's after Bottle Rocket, but before Royal Tenenbaums. It's probably still my favorite Wes Anderson film. And um, that's probably the other guy that makes it into uh, best actor is Jason Schwartzbaum mm-hmm. um, for me. I love Rushmore. Uh, it's, uh, it's also might be my best supporting actress winner, uh, for, uh, for Olivia Williams. She's so good in that film. Uh, that that's, that's one of the supporting actors too. Bill Murray would definitely have made it in there. Um, I, I love Rushmore. Uh, it's probably my fifth with Pleasantville coming just off of the six. Sure. That's understandable. Uh, just quickly before I mentioned mine, let's have a word on Shakespeare in Love versus Saving Private Ryan. Yes. Um, I think it is unfair that those two are constantly pitted against each other. I think it is. I think it's a lot easier to look at the two films and go, this is a great film. This is a great film. They're not in competition with each other. Just because one is more suited to women and one is more suited to men, they were always kind of seen as this yin and yang Mm. and battle of the two. And I don't know why you can't love them both, which I do. Um, I do think Saving Private Ryan is a slightly superior film, in my opinion, just because I don't think I'll ever have a unobjective opinion of Saving Private Ryan from the first time I watched it. I'm like, is this the greatest film I've ever seen? It's, uh, it, it's I've, I've softened on that, obviously, mm. but um, it's I still think there is so much about it that I love. And and then I rewatched Sh- uh, Shakespeare in Love just a couple months ago, and rewatching it, I'm going. I thought this was pretty good and I rewatched it and I realized, yep, I was right. It is very, very good. And it's a very worthy best picture winner. It just look it's always seen as a disappointment because it wasn't same. Shakespeare in Love was a film I rewatched a couple months ago as a comfort film during the lockdown, my city's yeah. lockdown. 
I think I would have voted for Shakespeare in Love over Saving Private Ryan if I was an Academy member. It's sort of the thing where you grow up and you constantly see people frustrated by the win and you think, are are we sure? Do we want to have a second conversation? A similar idea is people discrediting Marissa Tomei's win. Yes. And you think, no, she's she's one of the best in the lineup. What are you talking about? Absolutely. For me, Saving Private Ryan is a spectacularly, spectacularly crafted film. Like, you know, against a really well-written drama that the English nerd in me loves. <laughs> it's it's kind of hard to be subjective here. Uh, objective here, sorry. I love the film. I, I Like, I don't think it needed Miramax's aggressive campaigning to succeed. It's a good enough film on its own, and it is such a time capsule into 90s independent cinema. Yes. And it made it, it made a ton of money and it was really successful beyond that. And Gwyneth Paltrow was never not winning best actress. And um, I, I don't look at it as a man. Can you believe Saving Private Ryan lost? I'm like, well, I would have been fine with it winning, but I don't have a problem with Shakespeare. And Love. I think it's a very worthy nomination and a very worthy win. Um, yeah, so I, I don't look at it as a triumph of campaigning over uh, a film that didn't deserve it. I, I see it as two films that are unfairly pit against each other. Sure. All right, my, so my best picture lineup of 98 goes like this. Shakespeare in Love, Saving Private Ryan, The Thin Red Line, Pleasantville, and The Truman Show. It's the way I was boasting, like my love for Out of Sight and Gods and Monsters. You're probably thinking that's a pretty weird move to put Pleasantville in there. No, no, I get it. But I, I, I just really Pleasantville is just this great sort of cartoonish look into the way we escape into TV, and yes. in a way, it's a great companion piece of the Truman Show. It sort of becomes a bit Doctor Susie in the end, but that first and second act are so good. I agree, and I love Joan Allen's performance. That might be my best best actress winner. If it's a, a act, if it's lead actress, supporting actress, um, Joan Allen and the film in general will never get the credit it deserves. I do want to shout out uh, my other favorite performance from that film, and that's Jeff Daniels. Mm-hmm. The only thing that stops Pleasantville for me is Tobey Maguire. I, I guess he's not. not. Yeah, I don't think he's great. He's okay, but he's not great in the film. In in Reese Witherspoon, perfect. Yeah. Um, and then, and then all the supporting characters. Uh, but uh, yeah, Tobey Maguire is probably my only thing stopping me from sending it into the stratosphere. To- Tobey Maguire is doing that thing that he always does where he sort of like smirks through a line. You yes. know, when he's just like half smiling. He's like, are you laughing? This is, what are you trying to convey here? I would say he's, he's a good choice for the film, but you know. Yeah. Why are your eyes so big? Like, why why are you opening your eyes as wide as humanly possible while you're speaking? Like, I don't get it. Uh, yeah, I was just saying, I always have a lot of my reservations with Tobey Maguire films in general. It's generally with Tobey Maguire. But um, this is probably the best case scenario for him. Sure. All right. And from your best picture lineup that you have crafted, who is your winner? Uh, it is out of sight. It will always be out of sight. It might never not be out of sight just because... Um, like I said, it might be my favorite film. And okay, we're going to talk about 1998. I was going through a long like, man, there's a really bunch of solid, great films. Mm-hmm. Like, like 98 is a sneaky good year. I mean, 99 gets all the, the numbers for it, but I mean, 
99, 98 has a lot of, a uh, lot of heavy hitters. Um, yeah. And 98 is a year, like I mentioned before, when you kind of look at the Oscars and you think, oh, is that all there was? But you see, yeah. when you kind of look into the categories and you look at the films that were nominated for one, two, three, you think, oh, there were actually some pretty good films from that year. Those writing categories, those uh, the screenplay categories is... Are an alternate. They're like an alternate to Absolute, Best Picture. Absolutely. They're great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my one is The Truman Show. Hooray, hooray. Yes. Unsurprising. And in the poll that I created, you guys chose The Truman Show as the film that you would have most liked to see nominated. So thank you for that. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and we can both agree that uh, Life is Beautiful had uh, has no place in this. That was the real point of this episode, to get to that conclusion. And and, and I'll take it a step further. Um, Central Station from Brazil, mm. also nominated in uh, Foreign Language Film and uh, Best Actress that year. Um, that's a much, much superior film to Life is Beautiful. You could talk me into that being a Best Picture nominee over Life is Beautiful, um, but it's... Uh, it's it's not in my top ten, but it's still better than that film. Um, yeah, Life is Beautiful is not very good. Um, I'm not sure if it's. I have a list here. I have it ranked 84th of the films of that year. Like so out of 84, it's, it's right above. Uh, no, um, uh, 93 actually. All right. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. You can find me on Twitter at all underscore about underscore oscar or out of oscar pod ben thank you so much for joining me today where can people find you uh you can find me all over the place um at twitter at neb is ben um, that's my name backwards ben is ben neb is ben um you can find my letterbox at uh neb 810 you can find my writings on the film experience.net uh cinemascholars.com and my own site ice cream for freaks which is an out of sight reference Please feel free to follow me and uh, and then you will see me out in the world as the David Thulissa podcasting on uh, a whole host of other sites. So uh, thank you very much for having me. Sir. Of course. And thank you. We'll see you next time. Bye.